As you're taking your seat, go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're joining us this morning and you haven't been with us throughout this series, um, we are in the middle of a series on the church, and we're exploring what it looks like to be a biblical church, to rightly understand what God has laid out in His Word uh, about His body, His family, um, the institution called the church. Uh, We've been marching through this series, and we land um, today um, looking at the divine order and structure that God has given for the health and growth of the church. And it's important to understand the structure of the church because the church was never intended by God to sit stagnantly. The church was never meant to simply be uh, people who maintain themselves The church was never meant to simply be an event every week that people showed up to and left and kind of went about their everyday lives after that. The church burst onto the scene in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God is poured out upon the believers on that Pentecost day. The Spirit of God comes symbolically with the image of a flaming tongues of fire, And the picture is filled with theological importance, and at the very least, it expresses to the people of God that the church would be a powerful movement, a movement that would advance, and it would be, in one sense, aggressive. The tongues of fire falling upon the people, the the apostles beginning to speak in languages they did not know. People are hearing the glories and excellencies of God proclaimed in their own native tongue, a reminder that the church is not only advancing forward, it is to be missional. It it has a purpose built into it. It will be a, a people who will reach out to all the peoples of the world. Jesus had prepared the church and begun to establish a structure and an order in the life of the church. He had been working for three years with 12 disciples, men who would become the apostles of the church, who would lay the foundation of the church, who would give the word of God by the spirit of God to the people of God. But as the church explodes from Acts chapter 2, and Peter preaches a sermon where 3,000 people are saved, The supernatural growth reminds them that they need more structure and organization. They cannot properly care for the needs of the people of God as the church begins to grow. In Acts chapter 6, they begin a process of mobilizing the people of God. This morning, I want us to look at this concept that the church is called to be a mobilized people. And this was always the design of God, and by the time you get midway through the book of Acts, what you see is that local churches are being established and planted across the Greco-Roman world. The Apostle Paul has gone on missionary journeys, and he's helped to birth numerous church bodies. People are beginning to meet together. The gospel is flourishing. People are being saved, and and the numbers of the, the church are growing on a daily basis. And so under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Paul actually writes a letter here to his young protege in the faith, a man named Timothy. He's left Timothy in Ephesus, where he has planted a church. Paul had spent months in Ephesus developing people there, pouring into them, making disciples, helping the church thrive. And now he sends Timothy there, and he writes to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, listen, here's how the church is supposed to be structured. First Timothy is Uh, referred to as a pastoral epistle. It's written to a pastor 
instructing him on how to pastor the church, on how to organize the church, on how the church is intended to be healthy and how they can thrive, how they can be mobilized for the mission that God has given them. We need to be reminded as we consider Paul's words about the mobilization of the church that there can be no forward movement in any organization, not truly and not effectively, without some internal mobilization. It's imperative that we as the people of God understand the various roles and responsibilities that God has given to the church, to people within the church, all for the the growth and health of the whole, but for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what's at stake here. That's why this is so vitally important. Paul begins by writing and identifying the first uh, group of people in the church. As he mobilizes them, he identifies first elders, and I want us to read the first seven verses together. Here's what he says. He says, in chapter 3, verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Here we see first that elders are called to lead the church by equipping the saints. And this is kind of a fuller statement that's not found simply here, but it's found as we understand the idea and the role of a pastor or an elder or an overseer throughout the entirety of the New Testament. Now, we're building off of last week's message. If you weren't here last week, we looked at Hebrews 13, 17, and it referenced this picture of leaders in the church and called the church to respond to the leaders um, by willingly submitting and obeying and following their leadership for the advantage of the body of Christ and for the joy of the leaders. And here what we see is Paul is identifying for us a group of leaders in the church, and he begins by reminding us of the calling of these leaders. Now, we're going to identify three separate groups within the church and their roles and responsibilities. And as we do so, we're going to start with elders, we're going to look at deacons, and then we're going to look at the members of the body of Christ. In each one of those buckets, so to speak, I I want to look at the uh, character, sorry, the calling, the character, and the competency required for each to function in a healthy way. And Paul, right out the gates, reminds us of the calling of these leaders, he says in verse 1, the saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. Now, just notice that what Paul is doing is he is actually designating this as an office. It's an official function in the life of the church. It is part of the institutionalization of the church. And again, for some of us, institutionalism is, is a bit of a, um, a, a word we want to reject and resist But here we see that God actually brings structure into the church for the purpose of growth. Notice here that God calls some men into this unique role in the church. He calls this, at the end of verse 1, a noble task. It is a work that God calls some men into, and it is unique in one sense. So the question we need to ask from this text simply is this. What is the unique role of the pastor? What is this task of the the overseer. 
Now, it's interesting, the word that Paul chooses here to describe this office is overseer. It's helpful to know that there are three separate words that are used throughout the New Testament to describe the same office. Um, The words are, are overseer, elder, and pastor. All three words essentially speaking to the same office, but giving a, a kind of a nuanced and understanding of what that task actually is. The, the best passage that kind of pulls all these terms together is in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4. through 4, And it gives us even a sense of what their role looks like, how they exercise these different roles together. But let me just kind of point this out to you in 1 Peter chapter 5, um, verse 1. It'll be on the screen behind me. Listen to what he says first. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. That's the the one word there, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Then notice this word, shepherd the flock of God. Now, the word shepherd there is where we get the word pastor from. Um, it's, it's where the Latin word pasture comes from. You see the, the association there with pastor and pastor, the idea of shepherding God's people, caring for the sheep, leading the sheep. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And then here's this next word, exercising oversight. It's the same word that Paul uses right here in this passage. There is a kind of oversight, a caring and protecting the people of God that is required of these leaders. And then notice what it says to these leaders, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, and not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Again, a powerful reminder that, the, that these under-shepherds, so to speak, are going to give an account for the chief shepherd, to the chief shepherd for how they functioned in the life of the church. And that's a, an important reality. The, the role that he gives these men here is a specific Role. You say, well, what, what does this actually look like practically in the life of the church? The New Testament unpacks this in a variety of different ways with a variety of different statements, and I'm just going to give you a quick sampling of what it means to be an overseer, a pastor, or an elder in the church of Jesus Christ. Here's some of the details. Here's some of the things that are required of them. They're called, according to 1 Timothy 4.2, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. In 1 Timothy 5.17, they're called to rule and to rule well. In Titus 1.9, they're called to guard sound doctrine. In Titus 1.8, it calls them to do evangelism. Titus 1.10-14 calls them to preach and teach. James 5.14 calls the elders to pray for the sick, to care for the church, to be examples, as 1 Peter 5 says here, to be examples to the flock. Acts 15.22 gives us the picture that the elders and the key leaders in the church are to set the policy for the church. 1 Timothy 4.14 says they're to ordain other leaders. 2 Timothy 2.2 says they're to raise up other leaders. The leadership function of the elder is ultimately, listen, if you just kind of put all this together, you can summarize it like this, to to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. In fact, that's the exact words that Paul uses in Ephesians 4, chapter 12. The leaders have been given to the church to equip the saints to the work, for the work of the ministry, to disciple them, to build them up in the knowledge and, of the truth and love of the truth. It's a specific role that God has given to them in building into the body of Christ. Notice this, secondly, that it's a shared role. 
The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, the overseer there is plural. And if you look at the New Testament, what you see, and especially in First Peter as well, 5, is that he's speaking to a plurality of men. You see, the, the, the elder or the pastor was never designed to be a, a one-man show. It's not one individual making all the decisions on behalf of everybody else. Instead, what God does is he brings together a group of gifted, qualified, called men, and he calls them to function as a team, to work together. This is how, by the way, this works in our church. We're an elder-led church, and we lead as a plurality of elders, and we lead through consensus. So we work together, and you say, well, what's the benefit of this? Here, hopefully, what you have is godly, mature individuals who bring together a, a, a group of skill sets and giftedness and a compile their wisdom to help lead the church. There's a protection in this for the church. There's an accountability structure built into this. It's a beautiful a picture of unity amongst the leaders, leading together, trusting the Lord, praying together, seeking God's will together, helping one another, sharpening one another. It's a shared burden and a shared joy to lead the people of God. It is a shared role. Notice this secondly, it's a, it's thirdly, excuse me, it's a servant role. It's specific, it's shared, but it is a servant role. It's interesting the word Paul uses here, he's saying it's trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer. In other words, this is something, listen, that, that men are called to actually aspire to. There should be some kind of an inner, internal desire and a wanting of this role, a compulsion towards this role for the men who God calls there. Now, let me tell you what this is not. You see, some people look at this word aspire, and I think in our culture, sometimes people look at the ministry and they think, you know what? Um, I aspire to the ministry, but they aspire to it for a whole bunch of wrong, unbiblical reasons. They aspire to it because they want a position of power. They aspire to it because they want to uh, wield authority over other people. They aspire to a position. They aspire to advance their reputation. They aspire to use people to advance their own causes. They aspire to this role for all kinds of unhelpful, unbiblical, ungodly reasons. But you see, if we understand what this role actually is, we can understand what somebody is called to aspire to. And Jesus made it clear, you know, when we think of leadership, the, the disciples wrestled through this as well. In fact, they came to Jesus and they were thinking that, you know, to, to, to sit at his right hand and his left hand in positions of authority was going to be great. And Jesus had to remind them, listen, to be a leader in the church, in the kingdom of God, means not that you're going to function like the world, but you're going to function like Jesus. He says, we don't lead like the way the world does. We're not domineering. We're not dictatorial. We're not in this to advance our own cause. We're servant leaders. And ironically, if you want to lead in the church, it's not a position of power that you ought to be striving for, but a position of humility to become the greatest of all servants. And Jesus himself modeled this. To, to be a servant is to be like Jesus. Jesus, in fact, pressed this into the hearts of his disciples um, before his death by getting down low, right? Wrapping a towel around his waist and walking around the table with a basin of water and scrubbing the filthy, dirty, mucked up feet of his disciples, a position reserved for the lowest of the low slaves. Not even a Jewish slave was allowed to do that. And here is Jesus Christ, the Lord of wars, the creator of the universe, showing his disciples, giving them a model of what it looks like to lead in the family of God. 
What you ought to aspire to in this kind of leadership is a sacrificial, selfless, loving, humble leadership. A desire to see people grow and thrive and flourish. A desire to spend yourself for the good of the body of Christ. This is the aspiration of leadership in the church of Jesus Christ. You see, spiritual oversight is a divine calling. It is a noble task. And it is something that must also be affirmed. It is not simply about aspiration, it is also about affirmation. The inner desire of an individual to serve in this kind of a position in the body of Christ must actually be affirmed by the church based on how that man's life measures up to the God-given standards that Paul lays out next for us. He says, if a man is truly called, here's what his life is going to look like. So let's look at the character together. He begins in verse 2, and he says this. He says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Now, let's just stop there. You see, there is a high bar being established here for the leadership of the church. No one can just walk into leadership in the church. In fact, this is a huge safeguard against unbiblical leadership. This is not an exhaustive list. This is, in one sense, a bare minimum, but I want you to notice that there's a catch-all phrase that he uses here to describe um, the characteristic of, of this man's life. This man must be above reproach. His life, in other words, must not be marred by some clear, sinful, defective character. See, why is that such a big deal? Because this man is supposed to be an example of Christian maturity to the body of Christ. He's supposed to be a model. He's supposed to be an example to the flock, as Peter told us in 1 Peter 5. He's supposed to be a visible example of a life that's been transformed by Jesus Christ. He's supposed to be an individual who can stand amongst the people of God and say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. And by the way, this is not speaking of the perfection of the man's life. It's speaking of the direction of the man's life. But make no mistake about it. Listen, the bar is very high. People in the family of God are supposed to go, hey, I, I want to aspire to grow in Christ's likeness. I want to see somebody modeling this for me. And they're supposed to be able to look at the elders, the pastors, the overseers of the church and say, hey, you know what? They're not perfect, but that is a life that is being conformed to the image of Christ. That's the objective. And would you just notice too, as we're going to go through this list, I want just to highlight this. Notice this, that what is emphasized here in this list is predominantly character character and not giftedness. Now, here's why that matters, because when we think of leadership, and often this bleeds into the church, in a worldly sense, when we think of leadership, what do we think of? Giftedness, ability, proven ability, and by that we mean success by the world's standards. So here's what you often happen, have happening in churches. Listen, the standard to become an elder in many churches is this, uh, are you successful in the business world? Do you have many employees underneath you that you manage? Are you wealthy? But the Bible looks at that and says, if that's your standard, you're missing the whole point of leadership in the church. It is first and foremost spiritual leadership. And here's, here's why this matters. This is so great because, listen, because the, the Bible then tells us this, that it doesn't matter if you're a custodian or a CEO. If you have character, you can be qualified to lead the church. That's great news for most of us. As you look at these qualities, I want you to see an emphasis 
um, on moral character. You'll notice an emphasis on the home life and on spiritual maturity and on a public reputation. And as we go through these, we're just going to move fairly quickly. We're doing a high-level overview of this this morning, and uh, that, this will help us even moving into our next point. But just notice this first. Let's just move through these quickly. He says this. First of all, he must be above reproach, and here's what that looks like, the husband of one wife. And you read that like, yeah, that makes sense. He must not have more than one wife. That's, that's a good qualification for somebody who's going to lead the church. But here's what this means. This is not talking about having multiple wives. This, is, this can be translated, it should be translated, like a one-woman man. You say, why does he put this first? Isn't that kind of strange? Like, he puts the idea of marriage and the way this guy um, thinks about his wife first. Here's why, one of the reasons why. Listen, because sexual impurity has taken down more people and more men in ministry than probably any other sin. It wreaks havoc on the church. It does immeasurable damage. And so right away, Paul is making it clear, listen, that the, the sexual purity of the man is of the utmost importance. Now, this does not mandate that a man must be married, okay, because the same qualification fits if you're single. You must be a one-woman man. You must not be a sexually impure or immoral individual. If you are married, your eyes are for your wife. You are not known as being somebody who's flirtatious with other women. You are not somebody who's indulging in pornography, let alone any forms of adultery, Your life is marked by sexual purity, and that's where he begins. Your heart is for your wife. You say, well, why is marriage such a big deal to God? Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that God chooses marriage as one of the supreme pictures for how he identifies with the church, the bride of Christ. He moves on next to this idea of being sober-minded. This is the idea of being clear-headed, of being alert, of being vigilant. This man is a man of focus. This man is a man who knows what he's supposed to be doing. He stays on task. And as a result of that, he's next self-controlled. He reigns in his desires. He is not controlled by the desires of the flesh. He's not even controlled by good desires that take him down a bad path and away from his primary focus. He is completely self-controlled, well-disciplined in mind, rightly ordered priorities. And as a result of that, he's also respectable. He is well-disciplined, well-ordered, and it is seen in the way he lives his life, the things he pursues, the things he values, the things he spends his time on, the things he spends his money on. He is a man who has a respectful, well-ordered life, not a life of confusion and chaos. He is hospitable. He's kind to strangers. He's welcoming to all people. He's known as being somebody who is loving and gracious. He's able to teach. This is the only thing that is not character-related, and we'll deal with this next. He's not a drunkard. He's not controlled by substances. His life doesn't revolve around uh, sinful pleasures. He's controlled by the Spirit of God. He's not violent, but gentle, He's not quarrelsome. I mean, he's not out there getting in bar fights on the weekend. He's not stirring up trouble with people. He's not contentious. Instead, he's a peacemaker. He's not a lover of money. Not that he doesn't have money, but he doesn't love money. It doesn't have a grip on his life and on his heart. And he's not inclined to use people to get more of it. Notice how he goes now to his family. He says he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. That disqualifies most of us right now. (laughs) At least it feels like that, doesn't it? 
Somebody said to me this morning, you should have seen my house today. I would never meet this. I'm like, look, this is not talking about perfection. This is not talking about perfect obedience. This is talking about a home life, listen, that reflects order, where children love their parents, where they respond well to the correction and loving discipline of the parents, where they respect the authority structure, not always perfectly, but, but as a whole, as you evaluate it, the children are being led well and they're responding well. You say, why is the home life so important? Look at verse 5. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? In other words, the home is actually a microcosm of the church. You can see the way a man is going to shepherd the people of God simply by looking into his home. How does he love his wife? How does he lead his children? How does he care well for them? How does he shepherd them towards loving Jesus? How does he discipline them in love or not? You see what I'm saying? Like You can get a great window into someone's ability to shepherd the people of God and to manage the household of God simply by looking into their family life. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert. Again, the bar is high and there's protection in here. This is grace. It's a protection for the church and for the individual. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Listen, the scriptures warn about laying hands on any man too quickly. You don't rush people into spiritual leadership. That sets them up for failure and that sets destruction, puts destruction potentially into the church. Satan loves to... Uh, see our pride inflamed in our lives, and a new convert who's thrust into a position of leadership is inclined, listen, to view themselves more highly than they ought to. They need time to develop spiritual maturity, strength, fortitude. They need time to develop the proper humility to be able to lead the people of God well. He says, moreover, He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. There it is again, the devil creeping in, wanting to do damage. It is a dangerous thing to put somebody in a position of leadership in the church who has a terrible reputation outside the church. Their life must be consistent. It's a sweet thing when people outside the church, even unbelievers, can look at at these men in the church and say, you know what, I don't necessarily agree with what he believes or what he says or even how he lives, but man, that is a man of character. It's hard to fault this guy. You can't find anything, any accusation against him that sticks. That's the idea. If I could just sum up this whole picture, I'd say it like this. His life must be a beautiful witness, both to those inside and outside the church. And again, this is just simply, listen, mirroring the purpose of the church, to be a beautiful and faithful witness to the world around us of our God and his Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice next the competency. What exactly does he have to be able to do? Well, it says here at the end of verse 2 that he must be able to teach. So you take this godly character and you take this divine calling upon his life And here you see the primary responsibility of the leadership, of the elders and overseers of the church. They must be able to teach. And Timothy, Paul writes to Titus and adds this, they must be um, able to refute those who contradict. 
You see these twin truths and responsibilities of the leadership. They must be able to accurately uh, understand and unpack the word of God. They must know sound doctrine. They must know theology. They must know the word of God. They must be able to open up the word of God and explain it to people. And they must be able, listen, to refute those who contradict, those who want to come into the church and bring in false doctrine and try to sway people away from the truth. They must be able to get after that and on top of that and deal with it rightly according to the word of God. You see, their primary role is to protect the people of God. And so it's imperative that these men are tested in their ability to handle the word of God. They must be able to teach. And that does not mean that every one of the elders or pastors must be able to preach. Some of the elders are going to be called to exercise their role primarily in the role of teaching and preaching in a public setting like myself. But not every elder is expected to do this all the time. Every elder is expected to be able to aptly handle the word of God, to instruct others with that clarity and conviction, to refute those who contradict the sound doctrine, to rightly handle the word of truth, to not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God, to, yes, in season and out of season, proclaim and preach where called the word of God. Why? Because the word of God is the means of growth in the body of Christ. Without the word of God and without the spirit of God, we have nothing. So church, it's vital that you understand the responsibility that God has placed upon the back of the elders, and it's vital that you understand the responsibility um, they have not only to you, but your responsibility to them. And in light of last week, hopefully the leaders that God has called to lead this church are worthy, I trust, not perfect, not above correction, not above even rebuke at times, but they're worthy of being trusted and followed as they seek to faithfully follow God. And I need to say this, I mentioned last week, you know, from the text in Hebrews 13, that some people make it hard for the leaders to lead. And I just want to affirm to you that it is a joy to be a pastor in a church where it is so, for the most part, easy to lead the people of God, where there is an appetite and a hunger and a willingness to surrender and submit to the word of God. It is such a sweet joy. Now, there are exceptions to that rule, and I would urge you not to be one of those exceptions. But, listen, it is such a sweet joy as leaders in this church to see the people of God faithfully following him and following as, as we leaders try um, by the grace of God to continue to lead and to direct and to guide, to feed and to care as best we possibly can, um, falling short in many ways but striving to grow and be faithful to the Lord. And I would just say to you too, in light of Hebrews 13 where we're called to submit and obey the leaders and make it easy for them to lead, there, there is another layer of leadership that this applies to in the local church. And as Paul is mobilizing the church together, he identifies not just elders, but he identifies another group of leaders, and he calls them here in verse 8, deacons. Deacons are a separate category that are mobilizing the people of God and structured in a way that is helping the people of God continue to grow and stay on mission. Now, this is the only other office referenced in the Bible. Um, notice he says, deacons likewise. He's separating and, and creating a distinction, but that idea of likewise is also causing us to ponder the similarities in these um, roles. In other words, I, I want you to kind of look at this and say, um, the role of a deacon is very elder-like. 
they must meet many of the same qualifications, which reminds us or maybe speaks to the reality that they fulfill in some ways much of the same function as the elders. Now, the reason this is important is because maybe you've come out of a church background where you you understand deacons a particular way. Different denominations have different understandings of what it means to be a deacon in the church. Um, I, I get that. I completely understand. And what's really fascinating is that there's really no job description laid out in the, the New Testament. So there's room for interpretation there on what this might look like in different contexts. And I want to be sensitive to that. But, but I think here we can get a lot more insight into the role of a deacon maybe than, than we might think. There are some who have looked at deacons and the role of deacons in the church more as a practical ministry in the church. So in other words, they, they pick up the practical stuff and they relieve the elders of any a practical ministry, so the elders can focus on the spiritual ministry. So, for example, um, a deacon maybe would take care of the financial side of the church. Maybe they take care of the facility, uh, you know, the practical fixing up and maintenance of the facility, or maybe the food pantry. You see, they're doing more practical service to the body of Christ. But I, I think that's actually missing um, a key aspect of what these leaders are called to be and do. I, I don't see it as predominantly practical in nature. I think it's predominantly spiritual in nature, and I think it's a mistake to try and divorce those two things, the practicality and the spirituality of of their role. Let me explain. Let's look at the calling first of the deacon, and I think some of this comes through as we understand what Paul is saying here. First, just notice this, says deacons likewise must be dignified, let's read this list together, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus." It's amazing as you read this list how similar the requirements are, isn't it, for the elder and the deacon? The overlap is is incredible, and we'll be able to fly through it a little bit quicker this time around because of that. But notice this first, the idea of a deacon, you need to understand what that word means. The word deacon in in the Greek, it's a common word. The word is diakonos, so the word actually comes from a, a, a kind of a transliteration of that word diakonos, deacon. But the word itself is a very broad word, and it's applied to all Christians in the New Testament. It means servant or minister. Every Christian, in a sense, is called to be a servant. But here, Paul formalizes this term and this office in a unique way. He is calling the the servant to serve in a particular way. And here, the title kind of gives birth to this idea of, of greater structure in the church, again, for the sake of the whole. You have to picture here, listen, as the church is growing, they're outgrowing, the structure is outgrowing the, the, the growth in the church, so the church is outgrowing the structure of the leadership. So what's happening is kind of like a vine, the church is growing organically, and it's moving up and growing, but it can only reach so far unless you put in the proper organizational structure, the trellis that holds the vine and allows it to continue to, to move and progress forward. That's what God is doing here through this office as well as with the elders. By the way, this office is referenced by Paul in one other place in Philippians 1.1 where he seems to point it out uniquely as an office. But again, apparently, as as the number of believers increased and new churches were begun, God led the congregations to begin to formalize the servant role into this more specific church leadership role. Again, 
no clear job description, but the job description in one sense is in the very name itself. Deacons are to be servants. They are to be a distinct servant, a recognized servant in the life of the church. They are to be ministers who are working alongside the pastor and overseers of the church, the elders of the church. Some people look at Acts 6 as the paradigm for this. Just really quickly paraphrasing, Acts chapter 6, the church is growing. The apostles um, can't do all the work, and problems are, are arising, so they ask the church to help them identify seven godly men filled with the Spirit who are faithful. They bring them to the apostles. The apostles appoint them as servants in the church and begin to give them responsibility. These seven take on ministry responsibility, and they alleviate some of those responsibilities from the apostles themselves, freeing the apostles up to focus more on some of the very specific leadership requirements that they had to fulfill, primary teaching role, primary direction role. But I think, again, it's wrong to make a sharp distinction in Acts chapter 6 between the apostles and the seven. You see, the rest of Acts chapter 6 all the way through chapter 8 records the action of at least two of the seven who are brought forward into this role, Stephen and Philip. And one of the things you see with Stephen and Philip is that they had a specific caring ministry to perform. Yes, they helped serve the widows and the needy in the church, but they were also, listen, very, very vigilant proclaimers of the gospel. The seven defended the gospel, they preached the gospel, and they cared at the same time for believers. And I think what's clear is that the seven had learned from the apostles what it looked like to do ministry in the church. And I think they understood very clearly that the preaching of the gospel, the making of disciples, and the providing practical care were actually inseparable parts of spiritual leadership. They always went together. This is what Jesus modeled for the disciples in the first place. Jesus was always practically caring, and he was always instructing and teaching. So what we see here is that the deacons, in one sense, are by extension helping to fulfill the role of the elders. They really, in one sense, look very much like the elders. The only distinction is that they're not called in the same way to take that primary role in teaching in, in the public sense, in, in defending and articulating the, the broader sense doctrine of the church. The elders are given that responsibility and will answer to God for that. But what is the character of the deacon. Again, it's, it's virtually, notice it's the same as the elders. And again, this helps us understand that their role may not be as distinct as often we may have thought. Their quality, character qualities are to be the same because in many sense, the roles are very similar. You notice what he says. We'll just fly through this quickly. He says this, deacons likewise must be dignified. Again, you see the, the same idea of being above reproach. They must not be double-tongued. They must not be deceitful. They must not be liars. They must be trustworthy. They must not be addicted to much wine. They can't be drunkards. Again, they're supposed to be uh, controlling the appetites of the flesh and being controlled by the Spirit of God. They're not greedy for dishonest gain. Again, they're not lovers of money. Notice this verse 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So what does that mean? They must believe the truth and live the truth. That's the idea. They know the truth of the Word of God, and they live the truth of the Word of God. That's what it means to have a clear conscience in this case. They hold firm to the mystery of the Word of God. They know the gospel. They believe the Word of God, and as a result, they're living it out faithfully. Verse 10, 
And let them also be tested first. By the way, that also there implies that the elders were also to be tested. In like manner, the deacons are to be tested first. And then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Again, just notice here that the emphasis on character is of supreme importance. And again, just ask yourself, why? Because there are supposed to be examples to the flock in much the same way as the elders are supposed to be examples to the flock. They're supposed to model faithfulness to the church. They're supposed to model godliness and Christ-likeness in their lives. They're supposed to model maturity. And interestingly here in verse 11, he takes a turn and focuses in on the deacon's wives. Now, some have translated this as women, um, and that's possible because of the, the Greek word that's used. It can be used of both women and wives. But I think just... Um, textually and the flow of Paul's thought here is he's not speaking of women as a separate category. He's speaking of the deacon's wives in particular. And I think we can see that too just in the normal flow because back in verse 12, he just kind of picks up again talking to the deacons as if he never left off, as if he's been talking to the same group. But notice what he says here about their wives. He says their wives likewise must be dignified. Again, it's it's really just, it must be women of character. They must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Again, they're supposed to be models as well. You say, why why would he focus on the wives of the deacons and not the elders? Well, first, I think the implication is that um, if it's expected for the deacons, it's also expected for the elders. But I also think this lends itself to more of an understanding of what this ministry actually is intended to be by God. You see, the reason their wives matter and their character matters is because we understand this. Listen, that, that our spouses, godliness or ungodliness, can either lead, lead credibility to our ministry or, listen, diminish the effectiveness of our ministry. And in part, what this is saying, too, is this. Listen, that, that the, the deacon and his wife are actually supposed to function like a ministry team together. The ministry that God has handed to them is a ministry uh, jointly where they're caring for the body of Christ together, where they're going to be in people's homes and in people's lives, and they're going to be teaching and instructing and discipling and loving upon people. So it's imperative that they understand this is a team effort in many ways. Now, again, this doesn't mandate that a deacon must be married. It simply tells us that if he is married, then his wife must also be godly. They both are setting an example And then it says this in verse 13, for those who, by the way, verse 12, let deacons be a husband of one wife, again, the same as the elders, managing their children in their own household well, again, the same call for the elders, Uh, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Here's what this means, listen, the more faithful the deacon is, the more faithful the servant of God is, listen, the more influence they gain in the lives of the people they're serving. Not only that, the more assurance they have, not only in their own faith, but in the power of the gospel. They see the gospel working itself out in their lives as they continue to grow, and they see the power of the gospel working itself out in the lives of the people they're ministering to. Now, what is their competency? Well, the call here is for them to be tested Their character must be tested, but notice that the emphasis here is not on competency. They don't have to be able to teach. That is the real difference between the elders and the deacons in this context. Now, I want you to notice that it doesn't say they can't teach or they shouldn't teach. Like I just said, it it means in one sense, listen, that every Christian, by the way, has the responsibility to teach and disciple. 
Every one of us serves one another by encouraging one another, by exhorting one another, by counseling one another, by coming alongside one another, by instructing one another. This is just a part of what it means to be a part of the family of God. Their life and ministry is marked by their maturity and faithfulness to the Lord And thus, they are qualified by God to serve in a unique way, to help the leaders of the church uh, mobilize the people of God, to invest in the people of God, to shepherd the people of God by extension of the elders. Now, you may be asking this question, do we have deacons in our church? And if you've been around for any length of time, what's the answer? No, not by title. We currently, right now, um, do not have um, the institution Uh, or the office, excuse me, of elders in our church. But I want to encourage you, uh, maybe this is the better question, who would this be in our church? Who, in other words, is fulfilling this function in our church? And while we haven't used the title officially or instituted this office officially, really what we just described here is the role of our small group leader in the life of this church, specifically the men who are called to lead those groups alongside with their wives as a, a ministry team. They're doing virtually everything that we see the the deacons are supposed to be doing uh, as an extension of the elders' ministry. They're in people's lives. They're shepherding them in the truth. They're trying to lead them towards Christ-likeness. They're doing mutual ministry. They're meeting needs. They're mobilizing people for common causes in the life of the church and to help serve the body of Christ. In, In our church, listen, small group leaders have been given the greatest amount of authority and responsibility next to the elders. We, we put them through a rigorous process of testing. We put them through training. We're constantly even kind of keeping a pulse on how they're doing and pouring into them as elders and getting a pulse on how our church is doing through them as well and the people they shepherd. They are recognized leaders in this church. They have this immense responsibility to care for souls, instructing in the faith, and serving you. Now, here's why this matters Um, By the way, um, I want to encourage you, Uh, we are in the process as elders, we've really just been working hard and thinking through this and praying through this together. We're in the process of actually formally instituting the office of the deacon, and we're going to be unrolling that in the the weeks and months to come as we continue kind of to work through some of the details, and we're excited about where the Lord is taking us. But really, in one sense, we already see this being fleshed out in the life of our church. We just need to simply formalize it in the way that God lays out in His Word. But here's why this matters to you and to me. Listen, just if you flip a couple pages back, to 1 Thessalonians 5 in your Bibles there. Some of us maybe, and maybe I just can encourage, some of our, our small group leaders don't get enough credit and recognition for the work that they're doing, and, and I think they need to. Um, it is a difficult task that they have been called to. It is not easy And I think texts like this apply to them just as much as last week's text applies to the small group leaders, people who have been given charge to lead you and to guide you and care for you. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. He says this, we ask you, brothers, he's speaking to the church, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we don't say it enough, but listen, if you're a small group leader in this church, I just want you to know how much we value you, how much we appreciate the work that you're doing in the lives of the people of God in this place. You are a significant part of the ministry of this church. And and church family, I hope that you recognize the sacrifice that so many of these leaders are making on your behalf. 
and their desire to see you grow in godliness. I hope you give them what the Bible calls you to give them. Um, they're not perfect. They're making mistakes. They're not above, above correction either, right? We do mutual ministry together, but I hope you honor them and follow them. I hope they're modeling for you what it means to follow Christ. We are a mobilized people. And that leads us now into dealing specifically with the members of the church. And here's what our call is as members is to this, strengthen the church by serving each other. So we're getting kind of now to broadening into the whole family of God, bringing everybody into this picture. Yes, there is order and structure, but it is for the purpose of growing the whole. In 1 Timothy 3 there, you'll notice what Paul writes in verse 14. He says, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And then he goes on to lay out this beautiful confession. It's almost like a a hymn for the church. The common confession that they are protecting, the common confession that is uniting the church, and the common confession that the church is displaying to the world as they embody the structure that God has given to the church. Listen to this beautiful, beautiful hymn. He says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It's so fascinating that Paul closes out this chapter, this section, after dealing with the leadership and the organization and the structure of the church with with just really laying out the gospel. It reminds us, again, of the the mission that we're on, the purpose for which we are mobilized in the first place. Now, in verse 14, we get a glimpse into Paul's heart and into his, his journey that he was on. Notice this, he says he hopes to come to them soon. What's really fascinating is scholars tell us that Paul was never able to get back to Ephesus. And that's important because what Paul wrote here then becomes the standard for the church. He wanted to be there in person. He wanted to help them in person, but instead God allowed him to write this letter which would now, listen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which would be preserved and protected and passed down to the church. Every succeeding generation would have the same framework for how the church is supposed to operate and function and be healthy and flourishing. And I love the way that Paul describes in verse 15 the people of God. He says, if I delay that you may know how one ought to behave, this is all of us, by the way, in the household of God. And the language is, is so beautiful. He looks at the church, the, the living organism of the church, and he says, you guys are a household. You're a family. You have been linked together as brothers and sisters in Christ. God the Father being the head of us all. It's a beautiful picture of why we're mobilized together. No family, no, you know, the family is an institution as well. No family is healthy without any organization and structure. No family is healthy without all the members participating in doing what they are called to do as a part of that household. And so here Paul brings us all in and he says, listen, we are all a part of the household of God and he defines the household of God here as Uh, the church of the living God. God, the Spirit of God dwells here. He has united us together. He has, by His Spirit, gifted each one of us to play a specific and unique role in the building up of the whole. 
The church he calls here is the pillar and buttress of the truth. This is the place where we love the truth, where we guard the truth, where we sing the truth, where we respond to the truth, where we live the truth. That's what God's household is doing. And as a result of doing all those things, guess what else we do? We display the truth. We display the power of our God in our midst. We display the power of the gospel to save and transform and to redeem. We put God on full display in all of the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One author wrote this. His name is Andrew Clark. He said, the functioning of the body requires and is equally dependent on those who are not leaders. Can I just affirm that for you? You don't have to be a leader. In fact, some of you, you, just, you can't be a leader, but you're part of the family of God. And we need you. We need your contribution. We need your giftedness. We need the way that God has wired you for the building up of the body of Christ. This is the work of the ministry that all the saints are called to. Paul says this in Ephesians 4.12. The saints are equipped for the work of the ministry. Listen, the Christian community is a one another community, one anothering kind of community. Every member ministry, Pastor Brian is going to preach on this next week. Every individual member of the body is responsible to work together. We are mobilized as a family to stay on mission as we build one another up in love. You say, what's the character then? That's the calling of us. We were all called that. What's the character of every member? It is no different than the character of the elder or the deacon. Remember, they're just simply to be examples to the flock. You are called to the same standard as they are. You are called to be godly. Every follower of Christ has the same supreme objective, don't we? Are we all running towards the same prize? Are we all running towards the same goal? We're all called to look like who, church? Who? Jesus. Every one of us has to stand before God and we'll give an account for how much we look like Jesus. And here he lays this out. He says this, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And what he goes on to define, this idea of godliness, first and foremost, it points to Jesus and the beauty of the incarnation that God would become flesh. I mean, the mystery of this is astounding. God so loved you and me that he would come from heaven to earth, that he would take upon flesh, that he would live in this sin-cursed world, that he would walk around with sinners who rebelled against him, that he would die that he would rise, that he would be exalted to the right hand of the Father. Listen, the gospel calls us to embrace this beautiful picture, this beautiful character, the godliness of Jesus Christ. And as a result, we understand that, listen, because of the incarnation, we too can be made godly in Christ Jesus. We are called to become more like him every single day. There is no difference in the calling upon our lives when it comes to character. We must all aspire to the same thing. We all have this same goal, to look like Him. In fact, we need more to aspire to this in the life of our church. Well, what is the competency then of every member? Well, elders and deacons are to recruit and mobilize their fellow members in the body to help accomplish the many tasks required in a growing, healthy church body. As the scriptures say, the whole body only, listen, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love, Ephesians 4.16. Every one of us is contributing 
with whatever gift the Lord has given us to the strength and health of the whole. If I can just say it as clearly as possible, if you're a part of this church family, you matter here. You matter. You're not here by accident. God has wired you the way you are wired. He wants to grow you and change you, and he wants to do so in the context of this community, and he wants to use you. He wants to use you to build up the body of Christ here. He wants your commitment. He wants your participation. He wants you to keep serving. And some of you are doing this so faithfully. And I would just say to you, those of you who are serving so faithfully, you're in here, you're using your giftness, you're doing whatever you can for the building of the body of Christ. I just urge you, thank you. Praise God for you. Excel still more. There's still work to be done. The gospel still needs to go forward. The church is being mobilized to advance the mission. People need Jesus. Amen? We are the pillar and buttress of the truth. And as we do this together, just get that sense for a minute, we are the protectors of the truth, we are the defenders of the truth, we are the proclaimers of the truth, we are the livers of the truth. And that cannot be done alone. It must be done together. This is God's design. And we are confessing this together and we are, by God's grace, displaying this together. We are mobilized to display the God who called us into one body, into one family, into one church. We are mobilized by the gospel for the gospel. As the worship team comes up, let me just say this as we close. Listen, elders, deacons, members, we have a great responsibility. Now listen, some of you, you're sitting here and you're like, well, I don't fit into any one of those categories. God is calling out to you to embrace what he's offering. He wants to make you a part of his household. He does. And the way that happens is by bowing the knee to King Jesus, to embracing him as your authority, to confessing him as Lord and Master, to embracing what he did. As what Paul writes here, this confession here must become your confession. Jesus Christ, God of the universe, came and died for you to save you from your sins. He rose victoriously from the grave so that you could have life in him, so that you now could be used for the advancement of his mission. Be a part of what God is mobilizing. Join the mission. And in so doing, may... As we do this together, listen, may God alone receive all the praise and all the glory. Amen? Amen. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for how, Lord, you instruct us. I pray, God, that you would help us now as we turn to respond in song. Would you be pleased, Lord, to unite our hearts to sing the praises of you, our great God. May you alone receive all the honor and all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.